Hi, and welcome to the Circle of Film Podcast. I'm Ryan, and join me as we step into This Week in Movies in today's reviews episode. I can show you the world. Just take a look through my eyes. got six movies to talk about this week. Uh, they are all brand new 2017 released films. Uh, only one of them I saw outside of theaters and uh, it came out earlier in the year but I don't know if it even got a, like a theatrical run. I don't think it did. It's mostly a streaming film. So I only got to see it just now and that's why it's just coming up. Uh, so, uh, no, I think the order is generally how when, when, when I saw them. Uh, so, we'll start from there. First up is a sequel to a breakout box office hit last year, and that's A Bad Mom's Christmas. Bad Mom's Christmas, directed by John Lucas Scott Moore, starring Mila Kunis, Kristen Bell, and Katherine Hahn, among others. The original film... I don't know. I, I, I enjoyed elements of it, but I, I thought it was a bad movie overall. It's kind of dumb and appealing to the lowest common denominator. And somehow the sequel extends that even further. It's not trying to, to be anything other than raunchy comedy. And I just, I don't know. I, I didn't. I find I don't find that enjoyable and I think that even even to like the extent that it's trying to the the whatever message it's trying to send about being a mother and motherhood it only sends bad ones it's not uh it, it's it's ultimately for me is what it was trying to say is that as much as you can rebel against the system in place for uh, being a parent and specifically a mother in this day and age, and this movie uh, particularly focuses on the Christmas season, as much as you can rebel against that, and as much as you can, you know, just kind of say fuck it and try to do whatever you want, in the end, you're going to have to compromise and put in an incredibly high amount of work for uh, the only, as far as the movie's concerned, mostly just self-satisfaction that you've accomplished your task, not the adoration of your peers, uh, except for other mothers who understand what you've had to go through. And this is exceedingly troubling. I, I mean, I have not, and in all likelihood will never be a mother and so for that aspect of it obviously I'm not privy to the the machinations and goings on but I just I can't fathom you know the the general and mo and and uh, the the average mother having to put up with a whole the vast majority of the things that take place in this movie uh so as much as people complain about their mothers particularly daughters especially in movies but i'm sure that that extend i mean obviously there's a reason that that's such a, a well-trodden plot device but it's just the the level that it gets to in this movie is obscene it's absolutely ridiculous and i think that like the problem is that the movie doesn't i i don't know i don't know what this movie should be obviously i think it should be far more along the lines of ending on the message of yeah it's okay to make christmas however you want it to make as long as everyone's happy and if people are unhappy because you didn't work yourself to the bone then f that's on them fuck them because you shouldn't have to work yourself to the bone to to keep everyone happy you know it's it's that's not 
that's way above and beyond the Call of Duty in every sense of the terms. So, I think the movie misses the mark. I laughed less, you know, I could count the amount of times I laughed on one hand, and it's a shame, you know, I like most of the people in this, but it it just it didn't do it for me and i don't think it's going to do it for most people uh, actually so a bad mom's christmas it's it's not good and i gave it a 14 uh, to compare that to the original film uh, i gave that a 35 so pretty big step down for me and i would avoid it don't go see it next up is uh, a very, very different film. Uh, this is The Killing of a Sacred Deer, uh, directed by Yorgos Lanthimos, starring Colin Farrell, Nicole Kidman, Barry Keegan, Rafi Cassidy, and Sonny Soljic. Uh, the Killing of a Sacred Deer, the follow-up to uh, The Lobster, 2015's The Lobster, by Yorgos Lanthimos. And... Lanthimos has been, I mean, he hasn't made a lot of films. It, I, I, I think about it, and I feel like he's made dozens. He's made three movies that I've seen, uh, besides The Killing of a Sacred Deer and the Lobster, as well as Dogtooth. Uh, Dogtooth, a film that I think is fantastic, uh, whereas The Lobster I thought was great, um, but not quite as good as I think a lot of people thought. And... Killing of a Sacred Deer kind of hits the same range as The Lobster for me. I think it's a very good movie. I think it's borderline a great movie, but it's not amazing, and it is so dour and uh, dark that it's very difficult to enjoy yourself watching this movie. And I think it's a lot less deep, and I think it's a lot less troubling than something like Dogtooth. I think Killing of Sacred Deer wears its messages and themes on its sleeve a bit more than some of, than Lanthimos' previous films. However, while I think it's a touch better than The Lobster, I think that's mostly because what, what what, what weaknesses it does have thematically, it more than makes up for them visually and and in their in their performances by most of the characters and, and actors in this movie uh the the vague idea of this plot it, it's it's kind of a, a revenge film uh colin farrell plays a a surgeon and he has developed this unorthodox relationship with barry keegan after colin farrell uh lost keegan's father uh, on on the table a couple uh, a while back and so he's, I guess, kind of subtly feeling a little bit of remorse, guilt, and, and responsibility for that. But not much. Uh, he Enough to, to kind of entertain the notion that he could, he should, he should pay attention to Ke- Barry Keegan's character and, and, and to treat him well. Uh, meanwhile, Nicole Kidman, Rafi Cassidy, and Sonny Suljic play... Colin Farrell's wife and two children, respectively. And we get to this point in the movie where things take quite a drastic turn. And the film does not try to have a basis in reality. It doesn't try to explain why things are the way they are, which is, you know, typical of Lanthimos' previous films. So you kind of have to just turn your mind off as to why something is happening and focus on the things the film is telling you. You have to focus on the way the movie is explaining uh, sort of the reasons. It's not about a how, it's about why more so. Uh, And I'm sure I've messed that up already when talking about it, but it's not... I guess what I mean to say is it doesn't matter how he did the trick, it matters that the trick is happening, okay? So, uh, it ultimately uh, kind of forces Colin Farrell's character down this path of um, of a Sophie's Choice, but far more devastating, in my opinion. Uh, it, it forces you into this mindset of 
this topic of conversation that is very, very difficult to have, I think, with other family members. You, you can't really come to terms with the reality of the situation having not been in it. It is very, it's a very, very uh, uh, problematic like thought experiment to just put yourself through. And I think that Fer- Colin Farrell, who is the one put in this situation, does a great job of showing us how difficult it is. But more so, uh, he doesn't, you know, I think if, if he had been able to kind of roll with the situation uh, the way that one of the other characters kind of does, that that kind of feels like they, you know, that's a little sociopathic you know to kind of be devoid of that guilt and devoid of all of those questions and and concerns that come along with the situation so as vague as I'm trying to be because there's no spoilers here I was very much uh taken in by the by the film and its conceit I think it's a very interesting movie and I think that in particular Barry Keegan and Rafi Cassidy uh, who plays the daughter I think the two of them give fantastic performances in this movie and some of the most like haunting and chilling uh, scenes that you'll see this year most likely and that's Ugh, it's it's chilling, you know. It's it's nightmarish in in a, a couple of instances, and so to, to that to that extent, I have currently placed uh, Rafi Cassidy in my uh, female supporting category. Uh, she is the only person and thing represented in the Circle of Film Awards right now from the Killing of Sacred Deer, and. That's where that is. So I think that all in all, I mean, it's, it's a really well-acted well, well acted movie. I think Nicole Kidman was a little wasted in the film. And uh, Alicia Silverstone's also in this movie. I think she's in one scene. And I wish, I kind of wanted a second scene from her uh, after things kind of take a turn. But on the other hand, there's a lot of this movie that's unnecessary there's a lot of like lingering shots and and creative um i don't know scenes and things like that that i just don't think add to this movie at all and i've heard a lot of other people comment to something comment similarly uh saying that you could cut 10 15 minutes off this movie i think that's true i think that's absolutely correct and would have made this film a little bit quicker a little bit more have a little bit more urgency and i think that would have uh, serviced it quite quite significantly as it stands the killing of a sacred deer gets an 81 from me uh, that's fairly fairly high uh, that does put it into my top 20 for the year right now uh, but very close to the bottom of said 20 uh, it puts it in line with the uh, two other films that have also gotten 81s this year which are Ingrid Goes West, and the animated short film Cream. So, definitely, definitely, uh, definitely a pretty good movie. And not one I feel comfortable saying that you should go watch because it's enjoyable, but definitely uh, one where if you admire the filmmaking abilities of well, Yorgos Lanthimos, but also like a, I don't know, any any of the sort of David Lynch, um, Cronenberg sort of stuff, you know, I think this goes a long way toward putting itself in the same realm, at the very least. So, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, I think it's really good, and I, I enjoyed it, I guess, I would say, enjoyed it, liked it. It feels weird saying that, but I, I kind of did. So, Killing of a Sacred Deer. Next up uh, is a documentary. I saw this a few days ago. It's... Oh, I'm looking at the wrong movie. 
hold on a sec. It's not, it's this one. Uh, it's called Ex Libris colon New York Public Library. It's directed by Frederick Wiseman, who is a very prolific documentarian. Uh, this is the second of his films I've seen, uh, the first being National Gallery, which I thought was good. Uh, but but his his thing, so this man, this so this documentary is an intense look at the New York public library system. But what it really is, it's a, a sequential film that will show you an extended conversation and or monologue uh, that takes place either behind the scenes at the New York Public Library, uh, dealing with the budget, dealing with policy, uh, or it will show, show you uh, the, someone speaking at the library, either on the front steps or in a back room, or uh, it, it'll be telephone uh, helpers who are trying to help you find the right book, or this, that, and the other thing. Someone explaining um, uh, the the compare the the connections between slavery and uh, the Quran, or someone talking about you know this, that, the other thing. Um, that's about two thirds of the movie, I would say. Two thirds of the movie is that. And in between all of those scenes are much shorter segments that are generally brief shots of patrons of the inner workings of the library without dialogue uh, that are just, you know, people sleeping or people reading or checking out books. They're people uh, returning books and there's books going down conveyor belts and movies going down conveyor belts and things being made and put together and uh, people taking pictures of old books and things like that. And what this kind of all amounts to is it's a very slow uh, movie that plods along. And it's also three hours and 17 minutes long. It is in incredibly long. For me, too long. I think... I, I it's it's frustrating, but I, I do think that this is, would be like two and a half hours I, is probably the best length for this movie. I don't know how much of it you cut out and exactly where you cut what. I think a lot of that comes from the uh, dialogueless scenes. I think there's a lot of repetition happening there, and the ones that I found particularly interesting were few and far between. Now, on the other hand, I think a lot of the scenes that have dialogue, particularly the scenes that deal with behind-the-scenes machinations for the public library system, I found intensely intriguing. I think that that is fascinating, and I love, you know, the sort of the, you know, dialogues happening about what to do when homeless people come in just to sleep, dialogues happening about budget, dialogues happening about the, the considerations between putting mon fun fu funding the e-book library as opposed to the physical copy library and whether or not the current demand will stretch out over time, whether it will grow up, whether it will decrease, how that is all impacted by where this branch of the library is located, etc., etc., etc. And so you know, there's a good, good, healthy portion of this film that I found very, very compelling. But it's just, it's just so long. It's, it's absolutely, it's, it's a marathon, really. You kind of need a break in the middle of it, and you don't get that. I saw, well, I saw it at a movie theater, so, so you really don't get that. And I think that Ultimately, it is a good film. I like it more than National Gallery, but it does, it wears on you. It really does. You know, I would never watch this again. I would put this on in the background at like, I don't even know where. I don't know, like if I ran one of the public library chapters, branches, like I would not, I would feel fine like putting this on in the background if I cut out all the verbal parts, you know, for, for quiet's sake, but 
I don't know. I, I just don't know. I would never watch this again. And to that effect, like, there are definitely a lot of elements of it that I, I feel are warrant, you know, kind of discussion. And I, I've even had those discussions about it. And, and there are segments of it that I remember and that I will regurgitate at a later point. But uh, as it stands, I think it's just good. I not... <sighs> Apparently, a lot of Frederick Wiseman's documentaries are this long, which is uh, daunting. So it's going to be a while before I get another taste of his, but I'd heard that this was fairly good. I would agree it is fairly good, but it's not the kind of documentary I'm most favorable toward. So... That's Ex Libris, New York Public Library. I gave it a 66, which puts it in line with the uh, a film from much earlier this year called I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore, as well as the short film Lou. So that's where this stands for me. Ex Libris, New York Public Library. Next up is... Uh, a, a much more recent film. It came out over this weekend. It's called Goodbye, Christopher Robin. Directed by Simon Curtis, starring uh, Donald Gleason, Margot Robbie, Kelly MacDonald, and Will Tilston, among others. Uh, this is the second film of Simon Curtis's that I've seen, the first being My Week with Marilyn, which I thought was uh, decent. Decent. Uh, Goodbye, Christopher Robin kind of lands in the same ballpark as that for me. It's a story about the creation of Winnie the Pooh uh, as based on A.A. Um, a. Milne's son, uh, Billy Moon. And my first gripe with this movie is that Pretty much every character has a name that is not the name of their character. So, A.A. A. Milne is called Blue. Margot Robbie's uh, Daphne Milne is not... Uh, what do they call her? Well, I know Donald Gleason's character calls her Daphne, but uh, Will Tilston's character, who's Christopher Robin Milne, does not call her that forget. Uh, Kelly McDonald's character is named Olive, but she's called New. I don't know why. They may have mentioned that early on in the movie, but I don't remember. And then Christopher Robin Milne, Will Tilston, is called Billy Moon, which gets a brief explanation as to why, but like, it's very confusing, and I didn't not, I, I just, I don't, it's pop, uh, I don't like it. Not a fan. Not a fan. Moving past that, what I like about this movie is Will Tilston. I think he's adorable and exceedingly charming. And as well as I think Donald Gleason's performance is solid, but what I like most about it is the PTSD stress or the PTSD element of his character. He fought in the war, the first war, world war, and now has returned home to write and preferably persuade everyone else from ever engaging in war again. And throughout the film, he struggles when he hears, you know, the sounds of a balloon popping or um, bees buzzing, and it just, it takes him back there, and he can't wretch himself free from the hold that war has on him and having just seen a movie like thank you for your service which deals with ptsd and kind of the way war fucks you up uh this was a nice way of incorporating it without making it the main issue on the table uh it was kind of just sprinkled in throughout the film and i appreciated what they did and how they respectfully addressed this issue but didn't let it overpower the film uh, so much you know it, it definitely rears its head toward the end again uh, war itself necessarily not really PTSD but 
it, it all connects to the themes of the story and and the main story is winnie the pooh and and by extension uh christopher robin but there's also the issue of how that affected the family and at the end of the day like these parents are pretty fucking terrible like a.a milne and daphne are really shitty people uh particularly in uh, with respect to their child and when it you know there's there's scenes there are actually, there's beautiful scenes between margot robbie and will tilston between don gleason and will tilston where they're having fun where they're enjoying themselves where they're happy where the parenting is is working and they're actually putting in effort and time into their child and yet uh the fast like like the takeaway from this is like they were really awful fucking parents and did some really despicable things and treated christopher robin terribly uh which is awful and 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 i really hate that and i think the film does address this but it doesn't address it enough uh, or or with the severity that i think it deserves to be addressed it hits on it a couple of times um and i think kind of culminates uh through the kelly mcdonald character she plays the nanny uh, but, but all in all, it, it really did not, I don't know, the movie didn't wow me. It has a couple of moments that are, that are cute and adorable. And I think Will Tilston is, I, I mean, he's just like the, you know, you, it's just, it, it's so cute, such a cute kid. And so I, I wanted, I, I don't even know what I wanted. I, I guess I was not a fan of the ending of this movie. I, I was really, they they kind of time jump a little, and I don't like. I did not appreciate that at all because now they had to get a different person to play an older Christopher Robin, and that did not suit me. So I, I kind of wanted more of Will Tilston and. I don't know, things things are kind of rushed in this movie at the beginning and at the end to service the middle. And, I mean, that just makes the beginning and the end worse. So, goodbye Christopher Robin. I gave it a, meet, a middling score of 52. Puts it in line with films from this year called Rough Night and Logan Lucky. Uh, so, not very high on it. Not super low on it either, but but definitely very in the middle. Good things, bad things, eh, I wouldn't rush out to see it. So that's goodbye, Christopher Robin. Next up is the non-theatrical film uh, from 2017 that I've seen, and that is called The Little Hours, directed by Jeff, I want to say Baina, Bina, Baina, he is, uh, the other film I've seen of his that he directed is called Life After Beth, which also stars Aubrey Plaza. Uh, she is in The Little Hours alongside Alison Brie, Dave Franco, Kate Micucci, John C. Riley, and Molly Shannon, among others. Uh, the general conceit of this film is it takes place hundreds of years ago at a convent where Alison Brie, Aubrey Plaza, and Kate Micucci are nuns. Uh, John C. Riley is the presiding priest. Dave Franco is a runaway servant who is hired to work at the convent. And Molly Shannon is uh, Mother Superior, I think, is the term that I should use for that. She's a sister. I don't know. She's a sister. And <laughs> what the film does is take these scenarios and make them raunchy and r-rated so lots of swearing that feels very out of place scenarios and uh situations that you would not have expected to see in this time period or this place or with these characters and things like that and yet it tries to weave these things together and make them feel normal to some degree and also to kind of play against them 
not being normal. So to sort of rub against the expectations that you have for someone wearing a nun's habit, for someone who's a priest, for someone, etc. And to a certain degree, the film succeeds. I, I really liked the movie. I thought it was fun. I thought it was funny. And I like everyone involved in this movie. Uh, it also has Fred Armisen uh, and Nick Offerman, as well as Paul Reiser, Adam Pally in this movie. Like, there's a lot of good people, uh, fresh young people, you know, face uh, people that I, I just, I like all the things that they're in. And so, to that extent, I, I enjoyed this collaboration and conglomerate of them all coming together. However, the joke is always the same. Like, it's a very short movie. It's less than an hour and a half long. But it hits that same sort of we're nuns and we're swearing joke a lot. And I, I think that while I, I do like the sort of final turn the movie takes, uh, it kind of goes even further beyond the, the setup. I do think it could have gotten there faster and kind of given us a little bit more time in that situation. Uh, and I think that, I mean, it's not written ex particularly well. You know, it's, again, it's, you know, throw in a lot of fucks and shits and dammits and you've got yourself your movie which only works for so long, uh, and, you know, your mileage may vary, because I, I liked it for a good portion of its time. I'm, you know, having read some of the other reviews, there are definitely a lot of people who don't like it too long, but it's, um, it's a fun little movie. I, 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 I wouldn't say it's not for everybody, but it's a very contemporary raunchy comedy with uh, a lot of people in it that you probably enjoy like that you probably like so yeah half-hearted recommendation i guess uh i gave it a 61 so you know not super high uh, it puts it in line with films other films from this year named born in china a nature documentary as well as patty cakes uh, an indie movie that came out a short while ago so that's The Little Hours, directed by Jeff Baina. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it's 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 fine and good for what it is. But it doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't reach the heights of stuff like 21 and 22 Jump Street uh, or The First Neighbors, which I think are, are great comedies in that sort of realm. And I, I don't think this is at all that level for me. The Little Hours. Moving on, finally, the last film I'm going to talk about uh, before we jump into the Fantasy Movie League is uh, another documentary that I saw yesterday at, in theaters named called Jane. Uh, this is about Jane Goodall and uses never-before-seen footage that many believe to have been lost uh, forever. However, it was found, uh, as the film tells us, in 2014, and director Brett Morgan uh, assembled the footage and added additional footage from his one-on-one uh, -on -one interview with a still-alive Jane Goodall. Uh, Brett Morgan is the only film of his I've seen, but I did uh, other films he's, he's directed. The most popular one is probably Cobain, Montage of Heck. Uh, so, small pedigree this guy has in the directing world. This is a very brief movie. It's only an hour and a half long. And I really enjoyed it. I, I think that it, it does seem a little conventional at times, which is what kind of hesitated and, and prevented me from going any higher with it than the score I did ended up at. But for me, it's, it's a very intimate and personal look at this person and her relationship to nature, her relationship to the wild, her relationship to, in particular, chimpanzees, as well as how her chimpanzee research negatively and positively affected her own life. 
uh, you know, she mentions many times in the movie how she had always dreamed of living with the animals. She had always pictured and fancied herself a Tarzan and Jane. Uh, she felt at home living with the chimpanzees. You know, she never had, you know, she didn't have a doctorate when she left to go out there. She wasn't a scientist. She was a secretary. Um, and she just kind of let herself become ingratiated and welcomed into this world to the point where she was accepted and allowed residency. And she made some remarkable and startling discoveries. Uh, along the way, uh, she she marries the her photographer, uh, who is... Ooh, I'm not remembering the name. Uh... <laughs> Derek, no, that's the second one. Her first husband was Hugo Van Lauwek, who is generally considered one of the best uh, wildlife photographers of all of all time. And uh, she ends up marrying him uh, partway through, and then later divorcing him because she wants to stay, you know, with the chimps. And he's off in Africa, you know, he's off in the savannah taking pictures of things and like their their worlds just kind of diverge and they end up on different paths and this film is on one hand very much a a record of of her experience and time with these chimps but on the other hand it's also kind of an intimate and personal look into who she was as a person and it generally uses like footage from like 50 60 years ago to do that and it's in, in incredibly successful in what it's doing it you know i i will be honest i'm not very well educated about jane as a person i very much i i really don't know any more besides what i know from this documentary uh, anything I knew prior to this documentary is touched on in this documentary, and uh, I haven't done any external research, honestly. And yet, just this 90 minutes convinces me that, you know, this is one of the most influential people in modern science. She has been... Uh, she's a name that a lot of people are aware of, but I, again, I don't think a lot of people are know a lot about and this documentary does a great job of kind of exposing her a little bit and, and sort of explaining who she really was and it does as i said before it does see sort of become conventional at times i think it does kind of step on top of itself a little bit and that's mildly problematic I, I didn't have too big of an issue with it it is a short film it does have a very compelling subject and topic but it's it's a really fun and and enjoyable movie that has like one or two turns that that definitely hit you hard emotionally and you know seeing her today talking about her life then is also kind of fascinating and how sort of brutal and honest she is about her life and about life in general, I, I think is, is very fascinating. So Jane, uh, I ended up giving Jane a 76, which puts it in line with uh, It, a horror film, Stephen King's film, as well as another documentary, Batman and Bill, um, about the issues surrounding the co-creator of Batman. So, Jane, I very, I really liked it. Uh, one of my favorite documentaries from this year, and I would say it's definitely worth a watch, and you should go check it out if you have the opportunity. So that's Jane. Uh, Again, A Bad Mom's Christmas is terrible, as well as um, the other movies I saw. Uh, the Killing of Sacred Deer, I think, is very good. Tough to recommend, though. 
Uh, Ex Libris New York Public Library is very long, so if you're interested in it, be, be very careful. You're able to stomach three and over three hours of no plot, really. Uh, Goodbye Christopher Robin is okay. Uh, the little hours I liked, but it's it's definitely of a particular brand. And Jane, I think, is really good, and I, I encourage people to go out and sort of try to find it and, and watch it. That'll do it for the films today, uh, but we're not done yet, as uh, I got a, another Fantasy Movie League update coming up. We sink into our seats right as they dimmed out all the lights. A technicolor world made out of music and machine. I mean, how hard can that be? We're back from week 10 of the Cinerealist Fantasy Movie League. Uh, no one had a perfect Cineplex in our league this, this uh, week, but we did have five people at the top playing uh, a very strong uh, eight screens who led the way this week. Uh, Plexi, Rybone, Raman, Director's Cut, and Shawbin all brought in $110 million with... Uh, Three screens of Thor Ragnarok on Sunday, two screens of Geostorm, two screens of Suburbicon, and a screen of Victoria and Abdul. Thor came out. It was split up into Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Sunday did end up being the best value. However, it was only in the perfect lineup once. The perfect Cineplex ended up being one Friday of Thor Ragnarok, a Sunday of Thor Ragnarok, a Jigsaw, and then five of the best performer, Geostorm. Geostorm managing to hold very well in the face of Thor opening up to 120 130 million dollars this weekend 100 uh, the 100 and, no 120 2 123 million dollars give or take and that is that was enough to put it over the top it made a little over 3 million dollars and it nabbed its second best performer in 3 weeks this is the third of four week of the past four weeks where our leader Kiel Music has narrowly missed uh, the the best Cineplex in our league. Um, this week missing by about four and a half million. Last week five and a half, and week seven he missed by five five point two million dollars. So he again yields a little bit more ground to. Uh, People were just behind him. Uh, with that, uh, Plexi ended up with the best lock time. It was uh, tight, though. They were all of the lock times for that best best Cineplex in our league were after 11 a.m. Friday morning. Uh, Plexi, that is their second week one this season, joining Raman as well as Xanadu and YoJRB with two weeks one in this season. Um, he, and he, along with everyone else who played that uh, those eight screens, ended up uh, inching closer to number one this, uh, this season. So, as we stand, Kiel Music still clinging to the lead at $826 million, 87.5% of what would be a perfect season. Uh, Rybone moves uh, a little closer in second place with $818 million, $8 million behind. He's at 86.61% of a perfect season. Plexi moves into third place, jumping over Perksplex uh, with $810 million, 85.81% of a perfect season. Perksplex fell to fourth, uh, not playing the best Cineplex in our league, uh, dropping to $805 million or a $21 million deficit. Uh, he has an 85.28% of the perfect season. There's a big uh, drop between Perksplex and Raman to $774 million, uh, followed by Director's Cut at $770, Film Obsessed at also at $770, uh, then Xanadu at $763 and Shaban at $762 million, respectively. That's your top nine so far. All of these people are at above 80% of the perfect season through 10 weeks and all of them have 
13 or more best performers this season. Uh, we're led by Plexi right now, who has 19, uh, followed by, um, let me see here, Phillips has 35, and Shawbin, who both have 17. Uh, the only person outside of the top nine with double-digit best performers is Derek, who has 12. Uh, however, uh, he is in 15th place with $686 million. Uh, perhaps too far out of contention at this point, but uh, still a strong resume. That being said, uh, for... We are now 10 weeks into the season. Kill Music has not won a single week and yet remains at the top of the leaderboard. It, you know, two more weeks like this past one, like, you know, where he's off by about $5 million, will finally drop him out of the lead. He is going to need to be in contention at the top in the next week or two to hold on to this lead. Um, as I've mentioned in the past, the, uh, the in spring of 17, Shawbin won, having only won two weeks in that entire season, and it ended up being a season that he won overall. Uh, he led the whole way and did so with just one perfect Cineplex and only hitting the BP 20 times. By comparison, uh, Kill Music also only has one perfect Cineplex. He has hit the best performer 13 times and has never won a single week. Um... Yeah, uh, he has sort of benefited from Rybone and Plexi and Perksplex stumbling at various points throughout the season, as well as Raman and Director's Cut not being here for the first week. Had they be, were they, would they, <laughs> if they uh, were included in this league in the first week, they would have, they would both definitely be in first place and second place, respectively. Uh, Rahman slightly ahead of director's cut. However, that is not the case, and Q Music is our leader. Uh, you know, with Rahman stumbling in week five, uh, missing the perfect Cineplex by $23 million, uh, with Perksplex stumbling in week four, missing the best Cineplex in the league by $17 million, as well as... Uh, let me see here. Uh, Plexi stumbling in week weeks five and six, uh, missing the best Cineplexes from our league in those weeks by a combined about forty million dollars. Uh, you know it has been tough to avoid all of the landmines through this part of the season. Kill Music has managed to do so pretty effectively, uh, missing the majority of them. And the biggest stumble that he has had was week eight, uh, where he was, where he lost a huge piece of ground to Plexi, uh, $25 million there. Fortunately, uh, most people stumbled in week eight uh, in the league, so it was not as dire as it could have been. But these small missteps, the, Amer the American-made Kingsman fiasco of week seven, um, not playing Geostorm, uh, playing, you know, missing out on a couple of Geostorms this week as well, have hurt him and, and sort of, you know, dragged him back from, you know, what was once, you know, six, you know, five, six weeks ago, a pretty healthy margin. It is now simply not that, not the case. You know, he's, Less than $10 million ahead of Rybone, only 16 ahead of Plexi, and only 21 ahead of Perksplex. They are all within striking distance. There are still three full weeks to play, and that is a lot of time and a lot of money. Looking ahead to week 11, uh, we introduce two new movies, uh, Murder on the Orient Express and Daddy's Home 2, both priced as anchors in the high 200 FML dollars range. Thor Ragnarok has been uh, joined up as one slot again at $659. So, you know, you, you've got to wonder how big of a drop it's going to have. And hopefully you're using the correct Marvel film or comic book film as your comp. 
uh, it somehow manages to stay on the slate uh, for another week, despite, you know, presumably making less than a million dollars this week. Well, I, I would be endlessly shocked if it made a million dollars this week. I, I think it's in the half million dollar range, honestly. Um, and everything, you know, there's a huge group of films that, by my estimations, are making between, like, they're making less than $2 million this, this week. You know, if you think Boo makes over $2 million, that leaves one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine movies on the slate that are looking at an under $2 million weekend. And uh, for me, I think that the best performer does come from that range. I think that it is most likely... I, I don't have a lot of faith in any of the sort of anchors breaking out. I think that the... I honestly think Bad Mom's Christmas has the best chance to kind of break out of the top movies. But I don't know if it's going to break out enough to... I don't know. It's tough. I don't know if it's going to break out enough to be best performer. So it, it'll be it'll be interesting. Dailies are going to be very important, and those Friday preview numbers are going to matter a lot when uh, Thursday preview numbers, I mean, excuse me. So keep an eye out on everything you can, absorb as much information as possible, and hopefully that will lead to you making the correct decision. Uh, as, for, as for me, that's about it in the Fantasy Movie League. Thank you so much for listening. If you have... Uh, if you have any comments, concerns, questions, or answers, you can send those to circleoffilm at gmail.com. If you would like to check out the podcast and statistics and other information about me and stuff like that, head over to circlefilm.com for those things. If you'd like to support the show in any way, shape, or form, head over to patreon.com slash circleoffilm. And as always, have a week. So long, farewell, I'll be the same good night. I know. She'll never leave me, even as she fades from view. So long, farewell, I'll be to Saint Adieu. In the name of love, one night in the name of love. So long, farewell, oh, what I'll be to say. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. So long.